Would you consider yourself an argumentative person? Be honest. It's a safe place. Um, just in your natural state, uh, like the Apostle Paul would say, it, uh, just according to your flesh, are you someone that even if you don't go looking for an argument, you know, if, they're happy, if you happen to find yourself in one, you will gladly join in. I'm not, even, I'm not even criticizing this or saying it's necessarily a bad thing. I'm certainly describing myself when I ask this. Um, I have to be careful because I know I'm uh, argumentative and God has made me fairly good with, with words and fairly emotional. And if I'm not careful, sometimes I confuse hurting someone badly enough that they quit with winning an argument. Those aren't the same things. But if you are, if you're at all argumentative, if you enjoy a good debate, then I think you probably have felt that feeling where you, if I, where you feel like if I just say this right thing, I'm looking for that one comment that will end this debate or this argument. You know what I mean? Like if I just bring this one point home the right way, my opponent in this thing will just be like humbled into silence. I've just described like 60% of Facebook conversations and 90% of Twitter. It never works, right? It never actually happens. But it's easy to have that feeling where we think if I just make the right point the right way, then my opponent in this will think, oh, why did, I don't want to tangle with that guy anymore. His points are too tight and his intellect is too impressive. I'm out of my league here. I think we all, we can feel that. But we never achieve that really. Well, today in the book of Matthew, this happens. Today, Jesus has like a mic drop moment. Jesus has been, since he rode into town, into Jerusalem on the colt, a colt, the foal of a donkey, he rode into Jerusalem in a way that was like holding up a giant banner that said, I'm the Messiah. He got to the top of the hill, the Temple Mount, and basically since that time, and that for us, that's been, I don't know, eight or ten sermons ago probably or more, he's been in an argument, a debate, a series of them with his enemies. He started by telling some parables where they were obviously the bad guys in the parables. Then his opponents, the religious leaders of Israel, a little bit at a time, these small groups, representatives of the Herodians, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they've been coming to him and engaging him into into, in debate, and he has been engaging back. And he's been showing us you don't want to get into a debate with God because you will always lose. It has not gone well for his enemies, but they keep coming. Well, last week's question that Jesus got from the Pharisees was the last question. Because today, Jesus is going to go on the offensive, and he's going to take his turn at asking just a couple of questions. 
And there's something about this line of questioning that Jesus asked today. He just says, hey, uh, what do you guys think about the Christ? And he asks a couple of other questions, and it closes their mouths for some reason. And one thing I think is interesting about this passage is you can read this passage and not really understand why this happens. But something about this line of questioning makes these guys go, we are out of our league here. And they're going to stop questioning Jesus anymore. Not because they've decided that they agree with Jesus and they're going to stop being his enemies and start being his disciples. That certainly doesn't happen. They're going to have him killed in less than a week. But there's just something here that says, makes them go, this is not working. <laughs> this whole debate thing is backfiring. Jesus never makes a specific claim to be the Messiah today. He just wants to ask them what they think about the Messiah and expose some bad ideas about Messiah. And somewhere in there, he makes them quit. Let's read this passage. I think it's an interesting one to learn um, about what's up. This is uh, Matthew 22, 41 through 46. The New American Standard Version reads this way. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. And here it is. I would divide this into two questions. What do you think about the Christ? And he asked this, whose son is he? Whose son is the Christ? And the Pharisees answered, he's the son of David. So Jesus said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? And David said this, verse 44, David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And verse 46 says, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. That's the mic drop. Now what is it? What did he say? That made them decide we can't debate with this guy anymore. That's one thing we want to dive in and discover with them today. We start in verse 41 where Jesus' his, his most aggressive enemies, sort of his longest standing enemies are still standing there. They've just asked Jesus their last question, even though they didn't know it was going to be their last question at the time. And so Jesus asks and he engages them with this question. What do you think about the Christ? That's the main question. What do you guys think about the Christ? Remember, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Always, when you're reading the Bible, always pay attention when God asks questions. God never asks questions so that he can learn something he didn't already know. When God asks questions, he wants people to pay attention and think so Jesus just, he doesn't claim to be the Christ. He just says, what do you guys think about that? What are your thoughts about the Christ or the Messiah? So here's what Jesus knows. 
The Jews of Jesus' day were waiting for a Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. Just two different language words for the same position. They were waiting for this king. That has changed for Israel today. For the most part, Israel is no longer waiting. They've sort of given up, I guess. But in Jesus' day, they were waiting on the Christ. But Jesus knows they have some bad ideas, some incomplete ideas about what the Christ is to be. They're waiting for a, a political ruler and a military conqueror whom the Christ will be. The Old Testament promised that this Messiah, this King, would come who would um, defeat all of the the nations of the world and would reign from David's throne and Israel would be the dominant world power. And that sounds awesome to the Pharisees. That's what they want. They want to have. They want their nation to be the biggest, the bestest, the strongest. It's kind of a nationalistic desire. That's what they want out of a Messiah. They wanted a Messiah sort of the way we want a president. We live in a democracy. When it's time to elect a president, we want a president who will do what we want done, right? That's the way it works in a democracy. They want a Messiah that they want. The problem is, Messiah is not going to run a democracy. Messiah is not going to do what other people want him to do. He will serve those he leads But people are supposed to bow to the Christ. The Christ isn't supposed to bow to the people. And so they have, Jesus knows they have incomplete ideas about the Messiah because he won't just be, the Messiah was not just a political and military ruler. He had to be other things Jesus doesn't even touch on today. The suffering servant. He had to die for our sins. All he wants them to do, he just wants to expose You guys don't recognize me as the Messiah because you have bad ideas, incomplete ideas about the Christ. So Jesus asks, what do you think about the Messiah or the Christ? Whose son is he? And they answer right away, he's the son of David. And and the word son here is used as he's a descendant of, not a literal first generation son. He's a descendant of David. And uh, they're exactly right. Okay, that's not all Messiah is, but definitely the Old Testament promised one of David's great, 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 great grandkids would be the king of Israel and would be king over the, 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 the Gentile nations around. They're absolutely right. We could go to 2 Samuel 7 promises one of David's descendants will be a king. Uh, we could go into the book of Isaiah and read that. I just pulled out one example to show you that they were right to think this. In Jeremiah chapter 23, God promises this. God says, I, Yahweh, the Lord, I promise that a new time will certainly come when I will raise up for them, that's Israel, a righteous branch, a descendant of David. There it is. And he'll be a king. He will rule over Israel with wisdom and understanding and will do what is just and right in the land. Under his rule, Judah will enjoy safety and Israel will live in security. And this is the name he will go by. Uh, and, and the name is um, 
Yahweh Tzedekinu, which means something like either the Lord our righteousness or they'll call him the Lord has given us justice, something like that. So there's proof that these guys were right in expecting the Messiah to be a descendant of David. But again, their expectation of what Messiah will be is, is incomplete, which is why Jesus follows up that. He says, all right, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So it's David's descendant. And then Jesus says this. So explain to me this. Why does David, King David, looking into the future and seeing this descendant of his that'll be the Christ, the Messiah, why would David call a great, 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 great grandkid, one of his descendants, his Lord? That wasn't something that was done. Jesus quotes from Psalm 110. He says, how does David, by the Spirit, Jesus says, you know, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so David has to be right. Here's what David says. This is Psalm 110, verse 1. David writing. The, and I, I have to explain to you the two words, the, these two words that get translated Lord are different words. Um, if you're reading the Old Testament, this first one right here is the word Yahweh in Hebrew. It looks like Y-H-W-H. That's God's name. From the burning bush, Moses asked God, hey, you know, what if they ask who sent me? Well, what's your name? Yahweh, I am. It's a, it's a it's wordplay on the, the, the verb be, exist. I am. It's God's name. This word over here, the Jews would never say Yahweh. You know why? They took so seriously one of the Ten Commandments that says, Thou shalt not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. Yahweh, your God, in vain. You've got to be very careful with that name. They were so careful they would never say it. And even in the Hebrew Bible, above and below the, the, the letters Y-H-W-H, which is God's name, they put little clues, different vowels that didn't go with that word so that as they were reading, they wouldn't accidentally say the word Yahweh. The word they would say is the word Adonai, which is this one right here that gets translated Lord right here. Adonai is the word for Lord, Master, Sir, Superior. Okay, so what this really says is Yahweh, David said, I saw the God of the universe say to someone who is so much my superior that I'll call him my Lord. God said to that person, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Everyone in first century Israel knew that was about the Christ, the Messiah, the descendant of David. Here's what Jesus says. How can David have a descendant who's a king like he is, that's so far his superior that even David would call his great-grandson, great-great-great-great-great-grandson, his Lord? That wasn't done. This is a patriarchal society. Um, there, there's, there could be no such thing as a, an earthly king from David's line who is vastly superior to David if he's just human. It just, it just couldn't be. The best way I can think of to explain this to you is by using George Washington as our example. This is not an analogy that's perfect. It has its faults. Don't press this too far, but stay with me for one sec. George Washington... David was not the first king of Israel. You know that? A guy named Saul was king, and it didn't go very well, and God 
took away the, the kingdom from him and his family and established David, different tribe, different family. David wasn't the first king. He was just the first to be great. And he established that line. Did you know George Washington wasn't like technically the first president of the United States? It's true. After the revolution, uh, we had this little government called the Articles of Confederation. It wasn't very good. It didn't work. There was a chief executive that didn't have, really have any power. His name was anybody Shock the world right now and tell me his name. You never heard of him. His name's John Hanson. Sounds like a guy that works downtown or something, right? Like the credit union or something. Nobody's ever heard of this guy. But he was like the, he was the president under the articles. George Washington, though, was the first president under the Constitution, the first to be great. And from then on, he, and George uh, Washington established some precedents that are still made the presidency what it is. And I don't care how scholars rank presidents. You'll never find somebody that says there's a president that's just vastly superior to George Washington. He's not always first on their rankings or their lists. But nobody would ever say that we have a president that is far greater than George because he's George Washington. Right? Now, David in Israel is the greatest by every metric. I mean, he's the best warrior. He's the first to be great. And what's more, he's everybody's dad or grandpa or great-grandpa or great-great-great-great-grandpa in a society that reveres its ancestors. There's no such thing as a human king who's a descendant of David who could ever say, I'm greater than David or whom David would recognize so far my superior that I'm going to call him Lord. This has already been in the Old Testament for a thousand years. Jesus just points it out to the Pharisees and says, I want you guys to fit your view of Messiah into the scriptures. Just this one verse. How can David call this guy Lord? And look at the invitation. David's descendant, who will be a king, they call him the Christ. Look at the invitation he'll get. Yahweh, the God of the universe, will say to the Messiah, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What would you call a king or a president or a prime minister or any kind of ruler that got this invitation from the God of the universe? Why don't you come sit right here at my right hand and be my right hand man? My little buddy. Would that be the greatest ruler the world had ever seen? You might call a ruler like that the king of all kings. And the Lord of all lords. That's got to be the pinnacle of power. By the way, who just based on their own goodness and righteousness could even sit there in the presence of God and like survive? Like nobody. Here's what Jesus wants them to consider. The Messiah has to be more than a mere human descendant of David. And he is. There's a reason I put, this is a verse from the last chapter of the Bible. I don't know if you can see that very well. It's kind of dark. But here's what that says. In the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus will say one day these words before he returns. Or excuse me, this is after he was before the eternal state. Sorry. Jesus will announce this about himself. I am the root and the offspring of of David. 
Do you know how amazing that is? And the bright morning star, the rest of the verse says. The root, I'm the root cause, and I'm the descendant of David. How many people in the history of the world can say they were the root cause of someone and the descendant of that same person? You know how many people? Zero. Um, if you, happy Father's Day again, right? If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're a great-grandparent, you can say you were the cause, the root cause of those people, right? But you weren't the descendant of any of them. Does that make sense? You're the descendant of lots of people. You have parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents. You're the descendant of all of them. How many of your ancestors did you cause? Are you the root of? Zero! Jesus is the cause of David and the descendant of David at the same time. How can that be? Because he's God. I created David. Then I became a human and became the descendant of David. Jesus is um, not just the son of David. He's also the, the son of whom? The son of God. Matthew's already told us this. Matthew 1.1. Matthew says this story is going to be the story, the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David. Then what does Jesus, excuse me, then what does Matthew proceed to tell us in chapter 1 about how Jesus came to be alive? What's he tell us in chapter 1? What was Jesus' origin story from a human perspective? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. Why? Because he's God's son. He's not just a human son. Jesus' full identity is Jesus Christ and Son of God. And they miss the second part. That's what Jesus is trying to get them to understand here. All right, so that's his line of questioning. How? Explain to me how David, our greatest military and political hero, can understand that he's going to have a descendant that's so far superior to him that he calls him Lord. The answer is because that Messiah will not just be son of David, he'll also be son of God. And they get enough they understand enough, Jesus' enemies do, that they walk away. No one was able to answer him a word. And from that day on, no one dared question him any longer. Now back to kind of the original question. What about this made these guys clam up and walk away? Jesus never overtly claims to be the Messiah but he's given them plenty to think about. I'll take my stab at explaining why they run away and don't engage Jesus in debate anymore. Jesus asked them, whose, whose son is the Christ? And what did they say? Christ is the son of, what did they say? David. Was Jesus a descendant of David? Yes. How do we know? Can you be confident? Can you be confident that Jesus was a literal descendant of King David? You can. 
Multiple places in the New Testament say it, but even if you're skeptical about the Bible and you don't go in for all that stuff, you shouldn't be skeptical of the Bible. But in case you are, here is, to me, a very underrated proof that Jesus was a physical descendant of David. The Jews, the Israelites, kept impeccable genealogical records because God had promised they were going to be an autonomous, separate nation from which would come the Messiah. So to make sure they were genealogically sort of pure, because God wanted them to be, they kept only nation ever, by the way, that God said, I want you to be genealogically pure. They kept impeccable genealogical records. Everybody's ancestry was kept in the temple. It was, it was always there. It was part of what was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70, AD 70. So because of that, what would have been the easiest way for these guys who are trying to find a way to discredit Jesus? What would have been the easiest way for them to, to discredit Jesus' claim that he was the Messiah? You know what the easiest way would have been? Go check out his genealogical records. And if he's not a descendant of, of David, guess what they can say? Hey, everybody, he can't be the Messiah. You know why? Look, here's, his, here's the genealogical record of his mom and dad. He's not a descendant of David. He can't be the Messiah. Do you think any of them ever checked? You're darn right they checked. Why wouldn't they check everything? They were turning over every rock to find a way to discredit Jesus so people wouldn't believe that he was the Messiah. And if he wasn't a descendant of David, all they have to do is check, and this Jesus thing never gets off the ground. So he is a descendant of David. But what Jesus wants them to consider in this passage is that he's more than the son of David. He has to be div divine to be able to sit at the right hand of God and to be so far superior to King David that David calls him Lord. Did Jesus ever give any indication that he might be more than a mere human? Did he ever give any evidence that maybe he was supernatural? All kinds of evidence. In fact, even his enemies understood and knew it and believed that. We won't turn there, but we could go to John chapter 3, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he first starts doing miraculous things. The Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, they sent a guy to Jesus at night. What was his name? Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says to him, we know you are from God because no one could do the things that you do unless they were from God. Jesus' enemies said that at the beginning of his ministry, John chapter 3. Now they changed their mind later because remember they only want a Messiah that will do what they want done. But did they ever claim that Jesus wasn't supernatural, didn't have power? No, what did they do? How do, you, how do you explain someone who walks on water, tells storms to stop storming, and they obey, heals people from a distance just by ordering the disease be healed, raises people from the dead, calls himself I am, and Lord of the Sabbath. How do you explain someone with that kind of power if he's not from God? They just decided to say, well, he's from the devil. He's possessed. He's demonized. 
Jesus' enemies never concluded or argued that he wasn't supernaturally powerful. They just had to say he got his power from the wrong side of the fence, so to speak. All right, so here's where this leaves us. Jesus is a descendant of David, and they know it. Jesus is supernatural, and they know it. The Messiah will be a descendant of David who is supernatural. There's one other little tidbit in here that I think closes these guys' mouths that Jesus wants them to really weigh carefully. It's the verse he quotes from their hero, King David. King David said, Yahweh, the God of the universe, said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until, you catch this, until I put your enemies under your feet. According to the Bible, someday, every enemy of the Messiah is going to be completely defeated, vanquished by Messiah under his feet. Here's what I think Jesus is saying to these guys. The unspoken question. Are you sure you want to be my enemies? You better weigh this carefully, boys. Because I know you believe this thousand-year-old Hebrew scripture is the real thing. And, And the God of Israel, through David, your hero, one of the two greatest heroes of the Old Testament, promised every enemy of the real Messiah is going to be crushed by that Messiah. I'm a descendant of David. I am supernatural. Are you willing to stake your eternity on the hope that I am not who I am obviously claiming to be? You want to know why I think they clam up after this? Because I think the truth is too terrifying for them to confront. I don't think they want to think any longer about what it will mean if they remain an enemy of Jesus and he is who he claims to be. It's an interesting story. I like understanding that passage because I didn't understand it very well, honestly, before I studied for this sermon. But there are things that are more important that we can draw out of this passage than just understanding what the passage means and why these guys clammed up. Because here's the truth from the whole of Scripture. Every single person who's ever been born that wasn't named Jesus, last name of Nazareth, every other single person is born an enemy of God. If we were to look up Romans 5.10, you know what it would say? Paul says, we were enemies of God. Everyone who's ever been born is born an enemy of God. And we just read what will happen to every enemy of God. They'll be defeated, vanquished under the Messiah's feet. As we studied last week, I won't go through it. There is no other way to God besides believing that Jesus is who he claimed to be, Christ and Son of God and Savior of the world. The only cure what the Bible calls the enmity between God's enemies and himself. The only cure for that enmity is faith 
in Jesus, accepting and following the only Messiah and Savior God sent. In Ephesians 2, you just write these down, we won't look them up. Ephesians 2.16, Paul wrote that only at the cross of Christ, this happens, God put to death enmity between God and man. Only at the cross of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says that God reconciled himself to us at the cross through Christ. Colossians 1.21 says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile, you were enemies. You were engaged in evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Pay attention when God asks questions. And here is Jesus' main question today. What do you think about the Christ? I believe Jesus has been asking this of his enemies for 2,000 years. He's still asking it. He's doing it right now. He wants you to hear this and consider this question. What do you think about the Christ. What do you think about this story? Is it, just, is it so many fables? Is it a collection of tales? Is it a religion that people made up to try and feel better about what happens after death? What do you think about the Christ? Because if this book is true and you don't have the right answer to that question, you right now today are still an enemy of the God of this universe. And the wrath he says you deserve remains on your head. The only cure for that enmity is to believe that when Jesus came to be the Christ, not just a ruling king, but a suffering savior, the reason he suffered is because the wrath for sin had to be poured out somewhere, either on me or on him. And the only cure, the only antidote for being God's enemy is to believe on the method of salvation he provided. I know it sounds, I know it sounds mean, it sounds closed-minded, it sounds bigoted to say, to stand up here and proclaim publicly, there's really only one way to God. But listen, God, it's like if he put a ladder down from heaven and he only put one ladder down from heaven by which people could get to heaven, and we didn't tell people, hey, anything else won't get all the way up there. It's only got six or eight steps. You've got to take the right ladder. No one would say that was bigoted. You'd say that's helpful because I don't want to waste my life trying to climb up some ladder that won't get me there. The truth is, we can't climb at all. He lowered himself. He absorbed all of the wrath we deserve for our sins on the cross. And then he said, whosoever does what? Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. But it's only those who have the right answer to this question. What do you think about the Christ? Here's the right answer. I think his name was Jesus. I think he came to save me from the wrath of God. 
I think he came to pay the penalty I deserve on the cross. And the only way I will ever be presented holy and blameless and righteous and good enough to God is because I believe that he already did everything it will take to make me okay with God. He has canceled the enmity between me and God. I stand up here this morning. I am no longer an enemy of God. Do you know that? I am not an enemy of God. The Bible calls me his friend and his son. Why? Because I'm more moral than you are? Nope. Because I'm a better guy than you are? Nope. Because I have better church attendance and have done more religious things? Nope and nope. I'm an enemy of God because he doesn't have any more enmity for me. He poured out my enmity on Jesus. And when I believed in Jesus, I was saved forever and ever. And you can be too. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who died for your sins. Let's pray and we'll finish with a song. Father God, I thank you so much for sending one that was not merely the Son of David, but one who's your Son. And you did not send him the first time to be a king and to rule. You sent him to die 